News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I love that we have some great Canadian Olympic news heading into our chat with Crystal Gumansing this morning because Canadian Damian Warner just a few minutes ago won Olympic gold in the decathlon. Of course, our eyes are also on the soccer game coming up. So for all that and more, we're checking in with Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European correspondent, who is also covering the Olympics for us. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. Good news, right? Absolutely. It's fantastic. Thursday, we have a gold, a silver and a bronze all captured in one day and two of those, the gold and silver uh, historic medals for Canada. So I think that's pretty good news. Oh, I think it's a great Thursday. It's better better than average Thursday, I would say. That's right. Because <laughs> uh, we had a couple of dry days there where things, it was just like we were pushing something up, pushing a rock uphill to try to get some traction and it kind of paid off today. Uh, but let's talk about soccer because things are changing around soccer. Yeah, so that's sort of the first thing that we should note, because of course, everyone paying attention, Canada looking for a gold medal, we know at the very least, they'll end up with a silver, so they will end up with that, those three medals and back to back games. But uh, the game has been pushed, it is now going to be played Friday at 9pm in Tokyo. That is, of course, 8am Eastern in Canada. I'll let you do the math for your Vancouver audience. I'm in too many time zones right now. Yes. There we go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, both teams, the Swedes and the Canadians, had requested this time change. It was going to be played at 11 a.m., right in the middle of the heat of the day. The heat and the humidity, such an issue at these games. So many athletes have been talking about that. So both teams went to the Federation, they went to FIFA, they went to the IOC, said, can we move it if possible? They were prepared to go at 11 o'clock, but they won't have to. Time change making it a little bit um, you know, easier on all of the athletes and officials. So that one, uh, of course, everyone cl- paying close attention to that one, a shift in the time, uh, and and hoping for another medal. You know, we had Damien Warner, you were just talking about that one on the news, um, broke an Olympic record. He captured more than 9,000 points in the decathlon. And the decathlon is a really fascinating event because it is such a true test of athletic ability because there are, you know, so many different disciplines. And what was so impressive, too, is that I know he's talked about, he he, uh, got bronze at the Rio Olympics, Mm -hmm. but he was talking about the pandemic and the kind of challenges that he said there was nowhere for him to train. So for the past year, they were stuck without training. Well, this is really interesting, and it's a, it's a it's a great almost bit of Canadiana. What the community did in London, Ontario, they all came together and ended up converting a hockey arena and sort of set up a training center inside of a hockey arena so that they could train over the winter. Uh, you know, and he he talked about how what an amazing experience that was having the community come together. But you know, entering these games, he really said he wanted to push himself. He wanted to see what he could accomplish. He did have the bronze in Rio, but thought he could do something more. He also talked about the fact that, you know, this would be strange not to have his friends and family with him cheering him on, saying that, you know, all of his favorite Olympic memories included, you know, people in the stands and and the yelling and cheering. And now, Crystal, I know you've been following all the Olympics quite closely. There's been a lot of buzz, it felt like, for the uh, Olympic, like, climbing because it was the first time climbing has been in the Olympics. (laughs) Like, it's interesting how these different sports get lots of attention. 
Yeah, so there's there's a number of events that have been added. And of course, you know, uh, we had the, the two Canadians from North Van who are participating in those events, right. you know, also skateboarding. So some new events in there. And then, of course, new this year was uh, for the women anyways, canoe racing. Oh, yeah. that was a huge new one. And that's where we picked up the silver this morning. It was, a, you know, a historic win because it hasn't been done before. And Canada's 29 year old Laurence Vincent Lapointe of Trois Rivières, Quebec, picking up the silver medal there. You know, this is a, a, a decorated uh, um, a canoeist. She has lots of, of world championships, but this is the first Olympic medal. She was saying that, yeah, she you knows she she finished just behind the American, uh, finishing with 46.786 seconds. Um, oh, wow. So just behind, just behind the American for the gold, picked up the silver saying, you know what, I'm super happy. It is a silver medal at the Olympics, saying she pushed right until the end and, and you know, just really enjoyed the experience. Okay, I love that. I uh, love that we're looking ahead to soccer tomorrow morning. And I guess, uh, fingers crossed, I feel like this is the big moment that Canadians have been waiting for. You know, it's been the fun part about these games is we keep seeing these historic Canadian firsts. You know, yes. just yesterday we saw Andre de Grasse be the the first man to to win a gold in the the two hundred meter sprints. You know, in almost one hundred years. So, uh, you know, it, even the people are looking at sort of the comparison of of where Canada sits in the medal ranks. There's a lot of, of of personal best records that are being broken, a lot of Canadian records, a lot of Olympic records that are being broken by Canadians. It is really impressive. And we will, as you just mentioned, we will keep seeing this for the next couple of days because the games are almost done. Oh, I know. It always happens. It flies by, right? It flies <laughs> by just right. like that. Crystal, thank you so much. You're welcome. Krista Gubansinger, Global News European correspondent who's been covering the Olympics for us. You know what else was remarkable, really, about Andre de Grasse? Like, okay, gold medal, amazing. There's all of that. But the fact that he also competed in the 100 meter, he got the bronze in that. And so he did the 100 meter and the 200 meter. He was the only one to do that. Everybody else who was in the 200 meter did not do both events. He was like that rare person to compete in both and he did medal in both of them. So extraordinary. And this morning, as Crystal just mentioned there, all the talk is uh, 20 minutes ago, Canadian Damien Werner uh, hit gold in the decathlon. He won bronze at the Rio Olympics. But Crystal was just telling us about the amazing story about what happened. He said uh, during the pandemic, all of the facilities that they would use to train for the decathlon where he lives in London, Ontario, closed. He had nowhere to practice. So they found an indoor abandoned hockey rink, he said, one that was closed down because of COVID. They got permission from the city. And then the university, he said, people from the community all came together and they built a makeshift facility inside this hockey rink. And he said, you know what? Couldn't be more Canadian to have that happen. They, he and his coaches, they built a long jump pit. They brought in a pole vault pit. They built a throwing circle. They laid down 40 meters of track for him. So he was had this whole facility to train in. He said, we were able to train throughout the winter. It was stressful at times. He said, but the results that he's had since then shows that, you know what? It worked. Whatever they were doing, it worked. And he won the gold this morning. And we are so happy about that. And yes, all eyes Tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. our time, is the gold medal game between Canada and Sweden in women's soccer. And boy, you can tell 
A lot of people are going to have to change their plans because we thought it was seven o'clock tonight, but the team is pretty happy about that because of how incredibly hot it was going to be. They requested the time change. They got it. So five o'clock tomorrow morning. And you know what? There's lots of other good news coming out of the Olympics for Canada today, and we'll have your complete coverage on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of discussion about the Surrey Police Force these days. We heard this week that they are aiming to have boots on the ground by the end of November. But are they really ready to make that transition? Sounds like right now they're planning on having ride-alongs with Surrey RCMP members. So we're not quite sure what the whole thing's going to look like. Now, according to Brian Zoe, who's the president of the National Police Federation, uh, there's still no concrete plan for the Surrey Police Force. Uh, Chief Lipinski has admitted that there is no model. They don't know what the model is going to look like. They have no plan in place. No one's ever been able to tell us uh, what this looks like, how it's going to go. Are we going to be following uh, the RCMP complaints procedure through the CRCC? Are we going to be following the BC Police Act OPCC complaints procedure? Uh, which use of force model are we using? What domestic violence policies are we using? We don't know that. Uh, and th- that all goes to the basics of a plan. Um, and even the carefully worded uh, Surrey Police Service release um, was pretty blunt in that there is no plan and that they plan on making a plan with their lawyers to have a plan in place sometime in the future so that they can deploy more police officers. It's Brian Seve, who's the president of the National Police Federation. He was speaking yesterday on the Jill Bennett show. So not a lot of plans yet. He raises some good points, right? You want to know how is your police going to respond to certain situations? What are their guidelines? What will they be working under? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Surrey City Councilor Jack Hundell back with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Does it make you nervous when you hear about this? Absolutely. It made me nervous when I first saw what was originally proposed, uh, you know, two and a half years ago. And this confusion that we talk about is certainly confusion with the public as well. It's a question that we get asked uh, on a weekly basis, you know, uh, and it goes back to fundamentally the questions that were raised three years ago. Where are the bodies coming from? You know, clearly not from the RCMP at this point. You know, what's the cause? What's the difference? And is this going to make Surrey any safer? So those are definitely valid points raised by, by Brian today. Right. But is isn't it more realistic to say, listen, we're going to do this uh, slowly and carefully so we do it right rather than rushing to get everything done? You're absolutely right. And that's why the um, OPAL uh, report and review uh, said uh, certain benchmarks need to be met. What's the operational plan that needs to be agreed upon? Um, what is the, uh, you know, the consultation piece with the public? Light? And what's going to be the difference and the sign-off and approvals and and when you look at all those pieces, yet you see a rushed uh, press release coming out from uh, Surrey Police Services saying um, exactly that. You know, we have a plan, we're working on a plan, uh, and we're, we're going to try to deploy 50 members, which currently uh, Surrey has 843. Um, so uh, at the end of the day, what's going to be different? And like you said, you know, are they going to ride in the same car with an RCMP member? You got two unions that are involved now that didn't exist before. So that's another layer of complication that's added to this whole process. Have they been doing the consultation piece that you mentioned there? Because I know that when we talked to the chief, Lipinski, a couple of times, you know, months ago, uh, he emphasized that that's very important. They have to talk to the public. Has that happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, their process that they're using, uh, kind of an unknown, um, 
I think during COVID, they're doing just a consultation online. Uh, you know, they can certainly come out and meet the public now if they choose to uh, meet the public face-to-face, but it seems very, very uh, controlled consultation at this process. And, and that's one of the main complaints that uh, certainly we received back from the public is that, you know, when do I get to provide my input? And unfortunately, it looks like the only time we're going to be able to provide the public's overall input is going to be at the at the next election. So even though it was supposed to be up and running, you know, well in time for the next election, where do you think we're going to be at heading into 2022? I think it's going to be confusing, quite frankly. You know, you don't have that level of trust that you'd have with a new police force. Um, you know, you see the demonstrations, the oppositions, the rallies that happen outside City Hall. You know, the public wants to be heard. They want to have their input. So, you know, to deploy 50 police officers at that, the rate that we're going now, you're looking at probably a couple of decades before they're able to actually even match what we currently have with the RCMP. And one of, one of the, the things that always sort of um, I go back to is, you know, you've already gone to all the municipal police forces in the Lower Mainland. Um, you've gone to the RCMP, and you're only able to rally 50 operational members, uh, potentially sometime in you know in November, December of this year, uh, coming uh, 11 months before the next election. So, really, what's the incentive for people to actually join, knowing for a while that this could all be reversed and changed? Which is exactly what Minister Blair and and uh, Farnworth uh, stated that it's up to Surrey residents and the council at the time to decide to proceed with us. Right. So it just sounds like it's going to be not what we expected heading into that next election. No, it's, it's, it's not going to be a fully functional police service up and running. There's some heavy dependencies that are going to be on the RCMP and I think the provincial government. Certainly, uh, at the end of the day, it's the Surrey taxpayer that's going to wear the weight of this, uh, really of this folly. Okay, so then do you think it's going to become, like, is it too far to quit now, though, Jack? I think that's a question a lot of people have. Is I know I get emails from people, I'm sure you do too, saying it's not too late to put pause on this. But isn't it? There's an awful lot of work that has been done here. Yeah, and, and people ask, you know, is it past the point of no return? I tell everyone, no, it hasn't. I mean, use, uh, you know, the analogy here in Surrey, or the example where we had LRT for 10 years, and all of a sudden, um, you know, we switched to SkyTrain after 10 years. So really, at the end of the day, Surrey deserves the best police service and the best public safety it can get. And from what I see coming out of uh, SPS, I don't see that happening. How short-staffed do you think policing in Surrey is right now? Because we know that they needed more officers three years ago, even more officers two years ago, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like that's changing. Well, no, the mayor and, and the majority on council, I mean, had they made the right decision three years ago, you could have gotten 50 officers a year for the next you know, um, years moving forward and build up that capacity for public safety. You know, three years ago, we could have been have additional 50 resources, could be dealing with the guns and gang issue, which is, you know, public safety is, is front and center for a lot of people in Syria. And I think across lower mainland with what we've seen across the regional gang conflict. All right, more to come. Jack, thank you very much yeah. for your time. Okay, Simi. Take care. Jack Hundell, Surrey City Councillor, talking about that Surrey police transition. It just feels like everything they can just keeps getting kicked down the road. If, I, if I'm a Surrey resident, I'm worried at this point that we have not been hiring enough officers, even over the last three to four years during this process. And now the hiring process of the overall force seems to be going fairly slowly, too. Find a way in. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We're counting down the hours now. Not tonight at 7, but tomorrow morning at 5. That's when we here on the West Coast can watch the gold medal game of the Olympics. Canadian women's soccer team is going for it against Sweden. And you know who's going to be glued to the TV? Our next guest, as a matter of fact, because it's Carlos Grosso, dad of Team Canada women's soccer player Julia Grosso. Carlos, thanks for being with us this morning. Hey, my my pleasure. How nervous are you at this point? Well, it'll start hitting me a little bit later when I get up early in the morning again. <laughs> uh, are you glad to hear about the time change? Well, for for the players' safety, yes, right. But uh, we had the you know we had a viewing party scheduled. But you know what? It's all in the best interest of the players, right? It, health is the most important thing. Absolutely. Now, have you had a chance to talk to Julia? How's she feeling? Ah, uh, she's feeling excited, right? And you know what? It, you know, nervous, which is common for any players before the game. But once the game starts, the nerves go away. Now, Carlos, uh, being the dad of a soccer player, I mean, I was the mo- I, I spent a lot of Sundays at soccer games as well when my kids were growing up. What's it like to put in all that time and now see this happening? Oh, it, it's you know what it's you know it's a dream come true for for Julia, right? And you know, for for me and my wife, we we're very excited for her, and uh, we're just enjoying the journey, right? She's taken us to a lot of places around the world that I probably wouldn't have gone right to see how did she get into soccer uh well she started playing when she was five i mean her older sister carly and since she was the youngest one she wanted to be better than her older sister right and that's where it all started right so (laughs) so competitive at a young age is what you're telling us she's very competitive yes with her older sister yes and when did you know like was it by watching her did a coach tell you that there was something special here um she was always because she's left-footed right and uh we always knew that uh, she had that gift being a left-footed player right she had a lot of time a lot of lot of skill and she's very poised because i also coached her when she was younger right and then once she moved to the white caps right you could see the progression because she started with the u15 uh, national team u17 right so about that time you start you, you could start seeing right uh you know the progression there for her right because a lot of times kids, you know, they, it takes it takes time. It's yeah. it, it it's not a race, it's a marathon for these kids. Did she have rules about like you cheering on the sidelines? Like were you allowed to cheer really loudly? Were you allowed to, you know, suggest things like <laughs> cuz I know it's different for every kid. Well, uh, because I was a coach, but when I watch her, I always, you know, I always stayed away from the the parents. I always go into my own corner and I just watch the game quietly cuz I just like watching the game. From, from a coaching perspective. Right. So how do you talk about that with her? Pardon me? Like, uh, if, you know what? If she hasn't had the best game, and listen, this is a challenge, Carlos, for parents everywhere who has a child in sports, right? How do you talk about you know, a game that doesn't go their way? Well, it, you know, they're always going to make a bad pass. They're always going to make a mistake, right? For me, the only time that I, I would speak to her in regards is just being, uh, you know, not 100%, right? And normally I wouldn't say anything after the game. I'd wait a while and she'd, she'd eventually come. Cause, cause you, as a coach, you also learn that you don't want to talk to, you know, especially your daughter right after a game. Right. And yes. they, and they know when they have a bad game. Right. That's what I always said too. They know, like they know they better know. than anybody when they've had a bad game. So do you want to uh, make a little prediction for tomorrow, Carlos? Uh, it's Canada all the way. Canada all the way. <laughs> okay. Do you want to? Okay. How about this? I'll make it tougher. How about giving us a score? 
score. Yeah. I'm going to say 2 nothing. Wow. Okay. We'll see. We'll find out. And I hope you're right, Carlos. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, Simi. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. That's Carlos Grosso. He's the dad of Team Canada women's soccer player, Julia Grosso. Uh, You've heard a lot about her in the last few days, and I'm sure every family is ready, changing their plans like Carlos is. Uh, They're going to be having a viewing, of course, tomorrow morning, 5 o'clock, which is when the game is now. You may have been planning to watch it tonight. It's been moved because of the heat. They were originally going to be playing at 11 o'clock Tokyo time in the morning, And it's just intensely hot at that time. So the teams, both of them, Sweden, Canada, had requested a time change. That was granted to them. So now we will be seeing them at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. It'll be 9 o'clock in the evening Tokyo time. And all we can say is, go Canada, go. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the issue of mandatory vaccinations is a hot one, one we've talked about extensively here in BC and and one that they're talking about across the country. Well, now the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association is calling for the mandatory vaccination of healthcare workers. Seems timely too, especially given the recent uptake in COVID-19 cases And we've seen our numbers here in BC go way up this week. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Tim Guest, CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. Tim, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Tim, can you give us an idea of the the decision-making process that went into this? Sure. You know, we we worked collaboratively with the Canadian Medical Association on uh, this position. And uh, some of what we looked at were uh, the leveling off of vaccination rates uh, from across the country, growing concerns related to the contagious variants that we're seeing. And we also looked at the evidence. There's significant evidence that vaccines are safe, they're effective, and that they're best, the best way to fight infectious disease. We looked at the current research that has demonstrated that fully vaccinated people are less likely to transmit this COVID virus. They're less likely to get seriously ill from it, be hospitalized from it, or die from it. And uh, we also looked at uh, the ethical obligations that nurses, physicians, and other healthcare professionals have with respect to providing safe care. And we believe part of that ethical and professional responsibility includes getting vaccinated to reduce the risk of transmission of COVID-19. Have there been concerns, Tim, that not enough healthcare workers are getting vaccinated? No, um, not per se. Uh, part of the challenge is we actually have no idea how many are. Um, we know that historically, uh, nurses and physicians have had very high uptake of uh, vaccines. We do know that uh, they have been uh, anxiously waiting for vaccine access at the early stages of the pandemic. Many were putting their hands up to be amongst the first to be vaccinated when it became available. And um, we do know that that, uh, Statistics Canada did a survey of about 20,000 Canadians earlier in the year Many did identify during that process that they were healthcare workers, and of those, 80% had indicated they'd had at least one dose. So it gives us a bit of a sense of, of what um, uptake uh, has been. Should this have been done earlier? 
Um, potentially, I, I think we uh, we needed uh, some experience and uh, and to be able to see uh, some of the evidence and um, and uh, you know we believe that looking at this issue now that uh, a mandatory vaccination policy will provide an additional measure to protect patients that are seeking um, health services. It will help us protect the health workforce, which we're seeing challenges associated with vacancies and, uh, and uh, capacity, and uh, ultimately help us maintain uh, the capacity we have in the health system. All right. So is this something that, you know, have you spoken to the provincial organizations to see if they're all going to agree with you on this? Well, we do know that there will be varying uh, perspectives uh, on uh, the issue of uh, mandatory vaccination. Uh, we do know that on the labor side that uh, there is some opposition to those sorts of processes. Uh, but uh, as a professional association, uh, jointly with the Canadian Medical Association, we believe that as professionals, that we have an ethical obligation to uh, provide safe care and be vaccinated when we can. We did in our statement identify that there will be times that individuals have underlying health conditions that make uh, uh, being able to be vaccinated not possible and that those need to be considered. And so uh, we did say that, you know, there needs to be consideration for those sorts of issues. And uh, we are seeing uh, more um, jurisdictions and and employers and cities around the world looking at this. Uh, France and Italy, as an example, uh, have uh, very much taken the lead in this. And there already are employers in Canada that are requiring uh, their workforce to be uh, vaccinated. And uh, vaccination, uh, mandatory vaccination is not really a new phenomenon in healthcare. Uh, many of us needed to provide proof of up-to-date vaccination or, sorry, immunization to be even able to enter nursing school. Well, this is um, this is what I was wondering, too. I mean, people get tetanus shots, you get boosters. If you're going to travel, you get shots. Like, we're used to this. Why is it that this particular shot, do you think, seems to cause problems? Uh, you know, I think that uh, some of what we hear is there's a perception by some that the process was rushed and and um, and we've spoken out uh, about that, that we believe the process used in the development of these vaccines has been safe, that um, that uh, we believe the process has gone as fast as it did because everyone was working together and sharing their information, which allowed uh, them to uh find uh, the right solution quicker, that um, this isn't about uh, the process uh, being um, uh, overstepped or skipped, but um, that uh, these vaccines are safe. And, and I think part of it is we need to understand where there are individuals that have been hesitant to get vaccinated. Why? Provide them the information to help them with their decision-making. And we don't. We believe that there is also some that it might be uh, other barriers that have been an, uh, a factor that we need to uh, address so that they can get access. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about it this morning.
My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. That is Tim Guest, president of the Canadian Nurses Association, talking about their call, along with the Canadian Medical Association, for the mandatory vaccination of healthcare workers. Now, I know BC nurses, the BC Nurses Union have said um, they're not necessarily going to join the call, but they, they, you know, more or less support the idea of doing this. This is Mornings with Simi. Our COVID-19 numbers are going up and some of those cases are creeping over into long-term care homes. Three new outbreaks were declared in long-term care facilities since Monday. That was just in interior health. And don't forget, the regulations just loosened for long-term care homes a couple of weeks ago. So does this mean we're looking at putting more rules back in place? Well, joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry. Uh, this must concern you when you hear about these numbers. Of course it does. You know, um, people and uh, families of those living in long-term care have been a year and a half uh, separated and, you know, one outbreak and all of a sudden they're back to square one, not being able to have proper uh, visitation. Uh, it is a long and uh, just a very dismal road for families of people uh, in long-term care as well as people themselves, not to mention the staff, of course, uh, who have been working like crazy to look after people in long-term care and now with an outbreak have to work even harder. So um, if not for those uh, few people that are still not getting vaccinated, I, I, I doubt we would be seeing this. Yet, do you know what happened in these cases? Do we know how it got into the long-term care homes? No, the, the health authorities and, and the ministry uh, are not transparent about how these cases uh, happen. We do know, for instance, that uh, Brookhaven in West Kelowna, there's four residents and three staff affected in Cottonwoods, uh, two residents in Kelowna. Uh, but we don't know how how the um, how the virus got into into those homes. We do know that there's still some staff uh, in some homes that are not vaccinated. Uh, we know that uh, Dr. Henry has said there will be consequences, but we have yet to see the process by which that will happen. And and so we've created this window. Uh, where people are still very vulnerable, particularly with the Delta variant. Uh, and some researchers think that that's, you know, the viral load with the Delta variant can be a thousand times greater than the original uh, wild-type variant uh, of uh, COVID. So this is concerning for sure. We we don't want to take steps backwards after all families have been through over the last year and a half. So what do you do then? I mean, clearly there's a problem in interior health, in the Okanagan in particular. Is there something that needs to be done in that region to protect those long-term care homes? Well, I absolutely agree that where you see a high community spread, and we're seeing that in the central Okanagan at the moment, that I think you have to say you must be vaccinated in order to work in long-term care. Um, you know, we don't have the, the system in place to do the regular testing and uh, the um, registration of personal health numbers. That still has not been developed uh, almost four weeks since the, the uh, visit, uh, uh, visit regulations were relaxed. Uh, so I think the, the fastest and the most effective thing would be to say, look, in areas where we have high community spread, you must have a vaccine in order to work in long-term care. And, you know, we've seen this regional approach in terms of community spread in, in Kelowna with masking mandates, et cetera. So why not take a targeted approach to protect uh, the residents of long-term care where we're seeing high rates of community spread. All right, what tools do individual care homes have to combat this? 
Well, in this case, uh, most of the care homes affected are government owned and operated by health authorities. And so I can't speak for them because we don't represent them. We represent the contracted uh, care providers. The contracted care providers, uh, some have initiated uh, mandatory vaccines for new employees. Uh, so, you know, this eventually, of course, will, uh, will, will sort of take, uh, take place of uh, uh, the regulations that are there now and the rules that are in place. But in the meantime, uh, we want to get on board with rapid testing. Some of our members are doing rapid testing regularly. They've been very proactive and, and worked through the PHSA uh, to get their rapid testing program up and running. Others, uh, now with this new system created by the province, have to wait for the health authority to develop a process. And so we're, we're still waiting for that process to, uh, to be rolled out. Okay, so then what are the next steps, Terry? You must be concerned, right? So what can you do in the meantime? Do you send out warnings to long-term care homes? Are they on more alert, would you say, this week? I'm sure they're all uh, on uh, on alert. And the health authorities that oversee all care homes, whether they are contracted or, or run by health authorities, uh, stay in very close communication with uh, all of the operators. So there are uh, you know daily updates, uh, weekly town halls, so I think actually the health authorities have done a very good job of communicating, particularly in the last six months. Uh, so everyone is on high alert for sure, uh, but we absolutely need to have this process in place to uh, to be able to register the vaccination status of, uh, of workers and uh, get the rapid testing system in place if uh, people uh, refuse to or cannot be vaccinated. Right. So that sounds super challenging then. The way you describe it is that you, a long-term care home doesn't know at this point which workers are vaccinated and which ones aren't? That's correct. Uh, you know, we don't have um, the system to collect personal health numbers and, uh, and register them with the province. Uh, and, you know, we are still starting to collect that information on a voluntary basis. Uh, but until we have a system of, of uh, entering that into a database, uh, it really strictly is voluntary at this at this stage. Okay, well, I can see then why there are kind of holes in the system here. That would be frustrating. It is frustrating. I mean, everything about this virus is frustrating. You know, we, we every time we we relax, um, we find that uh, we get a, a, a renewal uh, due to this Delta variant now, and um, it it just shows though uh, to me how important it is for everybody in the community to be vaccinated because as the virus. Uh, spreads among the you know because people aren't vaccinated it spills over into the most vulnerable population so if you're a 25 year old in Kelowna West Kelowna you know, anywhere in the province please go out and get vaccinated because uh, if you don't want to do it for yourself do it for your yeah. your grandma your grandpa and good advice Terry thank you thank you Sim. this is mornings with Simi you know, we hear a lot about the technology used to develop these vaccines, like the mRNA technology, but do you know what it actually really means? Well, one of the researchers that was part of the team that developed an mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 has uh, now moved a little bit closer. Is now a professor at UBC. So Dr. Anna Blakely joins us now, an assistant professor at UBC's Michael Smith Laboratories and School of Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Blakely, thank you for joining us. Hello, good morning. And welcome to UBC and Vancouver. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure you get asked about this a lot, though, but did you ever imagine that a project that you would work on would have such a global impact? 
<laughs> you know, it's it's really quite an honor as a scientist, I think, especially in the biomedical field, you know, the ultimate goal is to have a positive impact on human health. And so to get this opportunity has been really incredible. Do you get asked to explain how it works a lot? <laughs> yes, but you know what, that's, I think it's actually like really nice, right? It's like people have an interest in what I'm doing. And you know, before like January of last year, very few people had an idea of what RNA vaccines were. So it's great. Okay, so can you explain it to us then? What was so revolutionary about this big change? Yeah, absolutely. So with any vaccine, we're trying to train your immune system to recognize a protein. So for SARS-CoV-2, this is the spike protein on the surface of the virus. And the old vaccines, we would, you know, inject the protein directly or a viral vector that kind of mimics this virus. Um, but the problem with these is that they take a lot of time and resources to make the new vaccine as well as scale up production of it. So instead, we introduce the protein by giving your cells the code, the messenger RNA code, to make the protein themselves. So we're kind of using the patient as our bioreactor. And because of this, we can make new vaccines really quickly um, and be able to scale up production and distribution, um, such as like we've seen for the Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. Right. People say, oh, this is a new vaccine. But really, how long had this research been in progress and been worked on? Yeah, I think this is something that most people don't appreciate is that actually the first time someone showed that RNA could be used um, as a vaccine was in 1990. So this technology has been around for a while. It just, you know, progress is slow. It takes a long time to develop it. And, you know, one of the huge um, challenges in the field for a long time was how do we get it into cells? Because RNA is a large negatively charged molecule. Your cells are also negatively charged, so they repel each other like magnets. So actually, a lot of the work that really enabled RNA vaccines came out of UBC, out of Peter Colt's lab and the lipid nanoparticles that he's been developing for decades now. So that was really one of the technologies that enabled RNA vaccines to even become a thing. Right. And so that's really why this vaccine was available so quickly, right, is because the technology had been worked on for a long time. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the, and something I think that pe many people don't know is actually RNA vaccines, you know, we say they're a new technology, but it's all relative, right? Like they're new relative to the really kind of archaic vaccines that we've had for a long time. Um, but the first RNA vaccine trial that was done started in 2013. So um, this was a, a vaccine for rabies that was done by CureVac. And so we now have, you know, like eight years of long-term safety data for those people. So we do have a pretty good idea of, of you know, any long-term side effects we may see with these vaccines and kind of an under better understanding of how they work because of all the work that's been done. Right. And so when it comes to vaccines across the board, it's like you have a mechanism, right? And then you can just change what you need the mechanism to address. Yeah, exactly. So for, for an RNA vaccine, the reason why it's so easy to make a new vaccine, as long as you know the protein you need to encode, you just type that protein sequence into software order it, it comes as DNA, we make RNA from the DNA, and then your vaccine is ready to go. So it really takes like a matter of days to, to you know, about a week to make a new RNA vaccine. And then the, the bottleneck is really just the testing of it. Do you think we're at the kind of threshold here of a whole new era when it comes to talking about vaccines and, and working on them? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I think yeah, I always kind of say now, like, the plane is off the ground, right? Like, we've seen that these RNA vaccines have really great safety profiles, but also really high efficacy, right? Like, 94 and 95% is just incredible 
um, for vaccine efficacy. So I don't think RNA vaccines are just going to become, you know, every vaccine overnight is going to become an RNA vaccine. But I think there's some really obvious candidates that will start to see RNA continue to improve these different vaccines. Oh, like what? So I think a really obvious case would be like the flu vaccine. So in a good year, um, it's about 30 to 40 percent effective, right? So this pales in comparison to the COVID vaccines that we have now. But part of the reason that the efficacy is so low for flu vaccines is that it mutates really quickly. So we have to decide, and um, it's still manufactured in eggs, which takes a really long time. So for the Northern Hemisphere, we have to decide in about February of each year what strains are going to go into the flu vaccine so that the vaccines are produced and ready to distribute in around October when flu season begins. So in that time, you know, the flu is already changing a lot, right? And instead, if we were able to make it with RNA vaccines, because it's such a short turnaround time on the production of it, you could actually imagine having three to four flu vaccine options throughout the flu season because it takes such a uh, less amount of time to actually produce the vaccine. Okay, that's so interesting because that's always been the holdup. We're kind of guessing when we produce the flu vaccine, right, about which strain is going to be dominant. So you're saying we can actually wait until we know what is dominant and taking off and then build a vaccine. Yeah, exactly. And we already have that infrastructure. There's like this whole network of WHO facilities all over the world that are monitoring flu. So like we know what's out there all the time. We've just never been able to respond to it very quickly. How do you respond, though, Dr. Blakeney, to people becoming instant experts in this field after you've gone to school for many, many years? Um, That must be a bit troublesome sometimes. Like if you go to somebody's house or you're having dinner with people, they they all everybody thinks they're an expert now. (laughs) You know, I'm really, I'm quite excited that everybody is so interested in the science. Like, I think it's a really positive thing for people to understand these and how they work. So I'm just delighted by the interest, honestly. So what are you going to be working on? So uh, my lab at UBC is now thinking about how we can make RNA vaccines even better, like grade the progress that we've uh, made in the past year. But I think there's a lot of ways that we can improve them. So one of the things we're working on is being able to minimize the dose of RNA that you use in each vaccine. So um, the type of RNA we use, which is called self-amplifying RNA, is a type of RNA that's able to make copies of itself once, you, once it gets into your cells. And so you can use a much lower initial dose of this. So this is really beneficial kind of for two things. So for the safety profile, you know, a lot of the side effects and reactions we see are proportional to the dose of RNA. So it should minimize the side effects we see. Um, But it it will also make it so that we can, you know, make a huge number of um, or a larger number of RNA vaccines from the same volume batch size. So this is obviously very advantageous in a pandemic um, because if you were able to make a hundred times as many vaccines from the same batch, we'd be able to, you know, make those and distribute around the world much more quickly. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you.